Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to From the Crow's Nest, our inaugural subscriber edition. I am your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Crows. As always, it's great to be here, and I greatly appreciate everyone here in the audience joining us for the first time, so thank you for listening. We have a great first show today. Uh, before I get to my guest, who many of you know, um, I have just a few things I want to share. Uh, first, I want to thank Annapolis Microsystems for their supporting of our From the Crow's Nest podcast of, in the month of January. Uh, you'll hear about them in our regular episodes, but I wanted to give a shout out to them, so I appreciate their support. Um, also, joining me in the virtual studio, in addition to our guests, uh, you can't see them right now, but they are here, is uh, Laura from Vox Topica Studios and our co-producer, Heather Moeller from the AOC. Uh, they are going to help run the show from the background, as well as Ish, our sound engineer. They do a fantastic job of helping us put these shows together the regular episodes, and now, of course, the subscriber editions uh, as well. So thank you. And they'll be there. They'll be in the background helping with the chat, helping with the questions, any comments that come in, um, helping run all that. Um, also, as I mentioned in my introduction, okay, so this is our new subscriber edition. So what does that mean? Uh, so beginning with this episode, we will be producing two additional episodes per month. Um, the Our two regular episodes that we have been producing are going to continue as as scheduled, uh, free for everyone, but our new subscriber editions will only be available to subscribers. Um, and as a subscriber, you'll be able to join into the recording like you are today, uh, join in the conversations, ask questions, provide comments, um, and so forth. So, and then we take this episode, we package it, and we'll be releasing it uh, tomorrow on Wednesday, the Wednesday following the recording. Um, and that episode will only be available to subscribers. So this is kind of a, a special benefit to those regular listeners who want to participate more in the show. Um, for the first few episodes, however, the subscription paywall is not set up yet. Um, so these are going to be free to the, to any viewer to download when we release them tomorrow, but we're trying to keep everybody from the audience to add to only AOC members only. Um, but they will be going behind the paywall very soon um, in the coming weeks. So if you're not an AOC member, um, we'll, you'll want to subscribe as soon as we get that up and going. Um, so there, there's two ways to do this. As I mentioned, the, the first one, the, and the, quite frankly, the best value, honestly, is, is going to be to be an AOC member. Uh, AOC, this is a member benefit for AOC members. You get a free annual subscription to the, to the From the Crow's Nest that renews as long as you keep your membership active. Um, and, but if you're, if membership is not for you at this time, uh, you'll be able to, through your podcast player, become a subscriber for $2 and 99 cents a month. So pretty, pretty, uh, pretty good deal on, on both of those. But again, twice a month, you get to join us in the studio if you're available or download the episode the next day. Um, and so if you're in the audience today, uh, just a quick mention, you'll see the chat function. Many of you have already been using it and I greatly appreciate it. 
Uh, we cannot see you in the audience, but uh, please use that chat function. Let us know you're here. Say hi. Uh, we're monitoring the chat. You can use that chat function to uh, provide any comments, feedback during the show, ask questions. Uh, Laura and Heather are there fielding those questions, and we'll be kind of engaging them to, so that we don't miss anything as, as we as we talk. Um, the chat stays with us. We do not release that publicly. So um, while we may say your name, while Laura may say your name or Heather may say your name in the chat, when we release the episode, we'll be cutting that out. So you don't have to worry about your name getting out into the public if you don't want to be identified on air. Um, with that, I think that that's all the basic uh, housekeeping items. So I wanted to introduce my guests. Uh, they really don't need much of an introduction by now. Uh, they are John Knowles, of course, our editor-in-chief of the Journal of Electromagnetic Dominance, uh, AOC's monthly GED magazine, and our relatively new senior analyst, Matt Thompson, who joined AOC around August of last year. Um, so, gentlemen, it's great to have you on the show, and thanks for your willingness to be here on the on the inaugural From the Crow's Nest subscriber edition. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Ken. Appreciate it. So, so just to get started, gentlemen, I, you know, Again, thanks for being here. I think this is the first time I've had I've talked to you both regularly uh, on a week to week basis. Uh, but you know, uh, first time I think I've had you both in the studio at the same time. So you know, kind of wanted to start off and, and just ask kind of what what has been on your mind here as we get started on the week. Um, you know, Matt and I have been traveling. John, you've been finishing up the Jed. What what has been kind of on the top of your mind here recently? I'll start with I'll start with you, John. Well, for me, obviously, Jed's to January. February, March. <laughs> so and I live my life about two months in advance of the actual day I'm in. So uh, it's kind of strange. But, uh, but we just been focusing on uh, uh, counter UAS in uh, January JED and, and uh, the February JED, which is coming out. We just finished that off. I'll have a focus on PEOIWS and Army EW sort of material modernization. Um, and then uh, and then March, we'll look at... Uh, uh, UK's projects in high energy lasers. So we're, we're running the gamut of different, <laughs> different topics, uh, in, in, in different, uh, technologies. Um, and, and, uh, so, so, so you just said, so January is already out. So February will be out shortly. And what's the feature article then in February again? February is going to be the, focused on POIWS. So uh, yep. Okay. So, Army. so you're working on three editions at once, and I'm still trying to remember which ones you're 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 talking about at each time. So yeah, I, February is POIWS, and then and then March you're already starting to kind of put that together. Uh -huh. um, so when, when looking at the at the big picture, you know, how, with your editorial calendar, like how, how do these topics kind of fit into basically what is going on in the EW community right now? I mean, um, you know, you, you, you try to kind of rotate around the various services and capabilities and so forth, but kind of what's really important, uh, what, what did you find important kind of working on the February Jed in terms of like the relevancy of the, the main issue with the current time? So for February, for example, <laughs> excuse me, for February, for example, we Army EW, I'm always, you'll notice that we don't write many articles just about Ukraine, but Ukraine informs a lot of our articles. Um, mm -hmm. So when I look at the, the Army, the U.S. Army, I'm thinking of lessons learned from Ukraine. Um, I'm looking at, really, in looking at this article, and I wrote my editorial about it, uh, it makes, which writing my editorial is helpful, makes me think about the article a different way from <laughs> compared to when I start shaping an article or assigning an article. And, uh, and really what I thought about in that was the army really, I give them credit. I never, I, I usually had always thought of the army as, uh, 
struggling in EW, very slow to modernize. Um, you know, coming out of the 90s, they had two major programs, uh, both the um, Intelligence Electronic Warfare Common Sensor, which was a big ground EW program that was going to network all these, you know, light and heavy brigade things. Um, and, uh, and that failed um, and crashed and burned. And out of that came Profit Program, which we, was much more modest. And then in the uh, Air, Airborne SIGINT side, they had Aerial Common Sensor, also did not come to fruition for a variety of reasons. So they had to just upgrade their guardrails and rely on aerial reconnaissance low. And also uh, they did start a program called EMARS, MC-12W, I think it was. And that was really just a reaction of toward um, uh, needing something for the global war on terror. And so, mm -hmm. so they, they ended up not succeeding in what they wanted to do in the 90s. Then they get into the global war on terror, which didn't push them too hard in needing, you know, really advanced DW. They needed to focus on on on, uh, on on counterinsurgency, but now you know. But starting about ten years ago, they start to pivot, thinking about China, but especially Russia near peer. Ukraine happens in 2014. That starts informing the army. What I give the army credit for is instead of trying to do something super ambitious right off the bat, and I'll call that the the Air Force model, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and and having a lot of high risk and things like that. They went to kind of the Navy model, which I think was a lot smarter because you did, they did incremental things. They did a, they did a series of ex experiments and, and, uh, they had these programs like twos and Ares and, uh, Artemis, these are like SIGINT aircraft, uh, twos was a ground EW system. They really just experimented, got a sense of what the possible technology possibilities were, um, really refined their requirements. And, and then now they're getting ready to launch a new generation instead of just going from guardrail, aerial constants, a low and uh, two and um, sorry uh, profit and jumping into the future. They've they've kind of made a steady steady approach, which is to me I call it the Navy model because that's exactly what they did with with AEA, with mm -hmm. you know going from the Prowler to the Growler, ALQ ninety nine to next gen Jammer things like that. So I I thought that was a much more. Um, successful and ha it has a more promise yeah. for success. Well, and 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 you clearly touched on a, a an accurate point there because I'm I'm looking at the chat here and and Fish, our our friend uh, Jeff Fisher, he he's uh he, he's saying that you're spot on there too. So and and for for our audience, I'll have Jeff Fisher on as a guest here for these uh, whether he knows it or not. I'll have him on a, a, these subscriber editions here uh, in the coming weeks. So uh, but yeah, and we'll definitely be talking about the Ukraine. I'm sure he's he's got a lot of additional points to add and. Uh, certainly, if you have specific questions, uh, you know, put it in the chat. But uh, you know, you were talking about that transition, you know, from in AEA how we handled AEA going from you know growler, prowler to growler, uh, next gen jammer, and so forth. Uh, you know, Matt and I had the opportunity to go down to Tucson, Arizona earlier this month to visit the uh, 55th Electronic Combat Group, the, the Compass Call community uh, down there in Tucson, uh, and uh, it was a fantastic visit. Uh, so for those of you who aren't, you know, obviously knew, you know the Compass Call, um, and they are getting their new uh, EA-37B aircraft delivered in March. Um, a little bit later than, than I, you know, obviously anticipated originally. I think it was supposed to be coming here last year, late last year, but it's now going to be March. Uh, but we went down in January oh. earlier this month to take a look at the you know where everything is stands right now on the eve of the arrival of the new craft. So you know when you're talking about transitioning to new platforms, new systems, new capabilities, this is another one that's happening right you know right now. So wanted to bring Matt in to talk a little bit about kind of what we saw. We had some fantastic meetings, some briefings, 
Um, and I believe your article is going to appear in the ECRO this week or, or soon. I know we've, it's complete. So uh, could you talk a little bit about kind of what we observed, you observed um, as part of that, of that uh, trip down there? Sure, absolutely. So uh, as far as I saw, that, by the way, there's a LinkedIn link already out today that has my article in it. Oh, so perfect. I think it's definitely, definitely getting published this week. That's, that's the efficiency of our staff. That's great. Yeah, it is indeed. Sometimes it's great. So, uh, you know, one of the, uh, you know, one of the things about being a new AOC member since August is, uh, you get to kind of see the other side of the coin. What I mean by that is, uh, you know, when we went down there, they really rolled, rolled the red carpet out for us. You know, all the important people, like all the tenant commands, uh, we got to see everything. Uh, but it also made it very easy for me to kind of transition into Matt, the aviator, where I'm sitting there looking at the transition schedule for the 18 G you know, as we're putting planes going away, planes coming up, when they're getting delivered, uh, I'll, I'll be pretty honest, you know, based on the delivery uh, expected last year, the first airplane, I thought they were much closer to IOC than they are. Uh, so it was really enlightening to me to see that really, you know, that IOC date is in 2026. So um, the reason that I think, you know, a few things that were really relevant, I thought that I took away uh, that I that I see as some challenges potentially. Uh, one, I think that the EC-130H compass call sundown timeline is pretty like it's well underway they're down to like five-ish airplanes like not counting the ones in theater but like here in the u.s um you know amongst the two squadrons like they're struggling i would say to get flight time and hours uh they're having a hard time getting parts so i think that uh so you know when we did that in the prowler world that kind of did one of two things it accelerated uh the transition if you will but it also like accelerated the sundown we're like hey you know we were supposed to sundown one airplane next month but we don't have the parts so we'll just sundown it now. So it'll be a little bit curious to see like how that sundown sundown timeline kind of plays but, out. But, but when you when you were sundowning the prowler, though, you you could, I would you you had a number of you had the number of prowlers that you could sundown. Uh, you, you could uh, speed that up a little bit and still make sure that you got the flight time. Were able to keep up with the mission. You know. Uh, had had uh, enough active not in maintenance to 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 do operations. Whereas with the compass going, you're only talking four or five aircraft left, basically. Uh, you know, two or you know, a couple are in theater, maybe a couple are in depot. You don't have any. You you can't. That sundowning is it has a dramatic effect when you're down to those numbers. One hundred percent. So you know the event to, to your point. The advantage we had we had ten squadrons, right? So we had we had other airplanes, other squadrons that were going to keep flying. Uh, you know, another interesting thing about them, they have two operational squadrons and then the, uh, you know, the training unit. So, you know, they're basically going to take one of those two units offline to transition uh, while they continue to send down airplane and support whatever the world like needs. Uh, so so I think it's a, I think there's definitely some some tricky timing that they're going to have to work through. Uh, the good news is the airplane delivery schedule looks pretty good. Um, you know, and I, I think once, you know, obviously, uh, some people, some things that maybe people are unaware that, you know, two of the airplanes are in DT still, so they're still in test. So like, as far as where like the timeline is like they're early in the timeline, but also, I, I also find that, you know, DT is a tricky time too. Uh, you know, one of the things I touch about in the articles is, you know, it's a time when requirements change, people try to add things in, you know, vendors like get asked for different requests, like. All, and it, every time one of those things happened, it kind of moves that timeline to the right. So at some point, you have to draw a line in the sand and say, hey, like, great, I appreciate all of that. They're going to have to be in the next spiral. You know, kind of to John's point, like the Navy said, hey, this is this is where we have to draw the line. And 
what happens next is kind of what you get. So, do, do, do you feel that the Air Force has been effective in drawing that line so far? I mean, it, it seems like there is still at least the threat, if not the, the reality of, of things moving more to the right. And there's already that, that gap, uh, as you mentioned, with, between the sundown and starting up of the, of the new fleet. Um, any more slippage, I mean, could be quite detrimental or s- at least operationally significant if if we're trying to, uh, you know, if, if if we need to have that that capability in the air. Yeah, so I think I think it's such a delicate balance, right? Because you know, one of the things that inevitably happens just based on the way that you know government procurement is set up, like that plane is probably going to be somewhat outdated the minute it hits the fleet. So so we're going to try to add as many requirements in and get things as current as we can. But uh, so, you know, based on our discussions when we were down there, uh, I don't, I didn't get the feeling that the line has been drawn in the sand yet, but I also didn't get the feeling that it's very far away, that they realize mm-hmm. that, you know, in the next, you know, six months or less, they're going to have to say, hey, this is the, this is where we're at. And I think that, you know, the DT, that the dynamic test, excuse me, the, uh, the testing is really going to drive that line. Uh, I think when they're done with testing before they go to operational, like that side, that line will be drawn in the sand. So. Okay, and then and then you know, I want to touch on training because it's actually a multifaceted uh, topic. You know, first of all, you have the training as it relates to uh, the uh, the compass call, the the new aircraft coming on board, and 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 there's a lot of uh, challenges. It's not just you know uh, flight. It's 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 the number of pilots, it's the number of crew, it's the re- somewhat of a reduction of crew. Um, and then, so how does everybody get the flight time they need? How does everybody get the realistic training they need? Um, what are your thoughts on their position today based on how hard it is for people to currently get the flight hours they need? What is your take today in terms of their ability to address this moving forward? Yeah, so I think I think it's a great question. Yeah, I think the training piece, uh, like I remember, you know, when we were doing the growler transition you know, we were flying a, a similar Super Hornet platform. So a lot of us went and got Super Hornet experience. Uh, but as far as, you know, one of the things that uh, Lieutenant Colonel Harris talked about is like the publications and all the all the manuals that are like all the associated stuff that they're going to train to, like that hasn't been written yet. So so they're going to be writing the document, reading the document, studying it, and then teaching it the next day. That's a, that's a very aggressive like training perspective. I think, I think that, that what comes out of that is that, you know, the, the aviators are going to get enough to be safe. They're going to get enough to be, you know, trained, but they're probably not going to be really super technically and tactically savvy yet because because those things haven't been developed as much as they could be. So that's mm-hmm. that's where I think it will be interesting. So I, I wanted to bring in John, um, you know, you, you to, get, to get his perspective because he, of course, he's been following this too. Um, and then, you know, also, you know, you talked about, you know, there's an aspect to the, the new compass call that like, it's going to be obsolete by the time it even gets started, you know, because of how fast the threat is going. And where are you even seeing that with in the Navy, when you're talking next gen jammer and, and other systems that are coming on, uh, capabilities that are coming online, this idea of obsolescence before it's even operational, which is not, uh, it's less of a, maybe a, it's less of a, a problem. It, it speaks more to the advancing threat maybe than than the work of the people developing the capability. But I want to bring John in and get his thoughts on that. And then while what before he starts also for those in the audience, you know if you if you have any questions, comments, you know feel free to put them in the chat. We'll try to get to them uh, about this topic or any anything else you're hearing and we'll weave it into the conversation. John. So I gotta say in your listening to your discussion about compass call, I realized that I'm not being fair to the Air Force. 
because this is the one program they've done incrementally. So they've taken they've taken L3 and BAE and rehosted that that mission system on a new aircraft. And so BAE had the hard work of trying to shrink that down and get that there. They're using the sixty, you know, the the, the same AESS unit, uh, you know, uh, to do it down on Texas. So. So that's actually the one example I can think of that the Air Force has been incremental. <laughs> they haven't gotten out of the business and then gotten back in the business like they've done with like the, you know, whatever they're going to do as a follow-on to EF-111 or whatever. And and so so that is actually, again, it, it's that approach of they have a lot of software baseline spirals that they're planning to to do. And, 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 that's, and they've done that before. They did that with the EC-130Hs over the last like 10 years, maybe even longer. But they were very good at incrementally. I mean, that's basically a, to me, in many ways, it's a program that lives almost entirely in QRC world. It's always getting, you know, you think about just the number of things they had to put on there, either in software, hardware, just just for the global war on terrorists for Afghanistan, Iraq operations. They're really, really good at that, um, and that's a program that has been run really like unlike almost all the other Air Force CW programs. So I'm I'm confident. I think it's a good crew. They all know each other. Again, there's not a lot of crazy change there. They're behind, um, but they but they're also getting something a new capability in terms of the platform that they're not used to. So they're 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 going to have to come up with some new TTPs and things like that. They have an excellent just going to training. They have an excellent track record with their simulators for crew simulators to train them. They, you know, going back with you know Textron and those guys. Um, I, I'm curious to see how they plug into the live virtual constructor world so they can do force level training because they historically, I don't know how much they've done with that in synthetic, um, just cause I don't know. It doesn't mean they didn't do it. Um, but I got to imagine that, that everybody's going to want that. And that's something that ground commanders and air operations centers, things like that, they're going to want to know how they can integrate with compass call. So I think there's going to be a huge demand signal. And then on top of that, you have all the things that are going on with the, uh, with the um, Spectrum Warfare wing down to Eglin and all the software work that they're doing, integrating in with the 16th Air Force to get capability on a compass call really fast and in and, and doing like with stitches and all those programs. So that's one of the best examples of, of the Air Force doing it very, very well, doing EW very, very well. Um, so I'm confident that they will, you know, they're just, they're just a great unit, great leaders, great, you know, personnel there, and they're very focused on their mission. And, and and it's it's always been a pleasure to kind of you know be down there. I mean, we're talking seven hundred, eight hundred plus, really EW uh, people in one spot. It's very easy for AOC to 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 engage down there. there there's great people. We we took some out to lunch. You know, we it was just great conversation. Really, it really it was fun to hear their stories. And and I do applaud the Air Force. I mean, I there has been. There have been moments in the past, in recent years, where you're you're not exactly sure if they were dedicated to it, and I, you know that's one of the reasons why the, the EW working group on Capitol Hill had to kind of step in and like increase the buy and make sure that everything stayed on time. But it seems like everyone's bought in, and I think the renaming of the aircraft also is kind of big now. That's an EA thirty seven. I think the the support that the Air Force has shown for this is is important. So, question: You have a new system coming on board, new capability. New, new platform. How do you keep it from? Yeah. How, how do you keep it focused on the mission, the Air Force, and the Joint Force needs it for versus all the many other things it could probably do for Joint War Fighting from 
across the range of operations from anywhere from you know SIGINT and collection and intelligence to operational electron electromagnetic warfare. Um, so I think one thing it's important to remember is that in in its in its last decade or two, the EC-130Hs, their primary mission has been supporting SOCOM. And so they're pretty good at that. Uh, they're pretty good at, you know, stepping up. It really, it hasn't been, it's been a very good joint asset. I won't say it hasn't been an Air Force asset, but it's been used in Afghanistan and Iraq. It's been a very good joint asset. I think with the new platform, the business jet, I think that's going to make it the Air Force a little uh more likely to utilize it, but, but it has, they have done, they've supported a lot of different missions for a lot of different customers. Uh, and so I think they're, they're good at that and they, they understand the signal sets, they understand, you know, the ground. I mean, that, that was probably the Air Force's biggest contribution to air ground warfare during the global war on terror. Yeah. But I think, I think that Ken, to your point, it's going to be a little bit of a political discussion, right? Like as much as the Air Force would like to say, you know, this is a joint asset kind of stick into what it's doing. Like it's going to have so many capabilities that, you know, and that always inevitably happens with like a, uh, you know, low density, high requested platform. And they're going to be even more capable. And the G550 is going to be able to go lots more places. It's going to have a lot more range, a lot more loader time. Uh, I, I see lots of other like requests coming in from different places that they just haven't asked, been asked before. Um, so, you know, I think there's going to have to be some some pretty careful prioritization uh, you know, how those assets are farmed out, where they go, who gets them, uh, you know, and I, and I think that's going to be, you know, above the Air Force, you know, pay grade level, like, you know, more at the, uh, you know, the Secretary of Defense kind of level, if we're being honest, I think. Mm -hmm. One well, thing I'd uh, also add, yeah. uh, sorry, I was just going to say, no, is, no, go is that we've always thought of the Compass Call, same with the Growler, as the platform it's manned, but it, if you think of it in a to go back in time, a mothership concept that they're unmanned combat aerial vehicles supporting it with their own communications and radar, electronic attack payloads, things like that. That's to me, compass call is more than compass call. If you, and I'm not saying that they're doing that now, but at some point, it's going to be a quarterback as a manned platform that can't go into the battle space, but there's going to be a lot of unmanned platforms that the compass call either may control or complement. Um, so you got to think about that force sort of uh, aggregation. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. A BA Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating, disruptive next generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing to high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy 
and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BA Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products that benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems, Electronic Systems, product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work at classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. Um, so, so if everything goes right for us, I, you know, Matt, we had I had an opportunity to interview um, uh, two gentlemen, uh, Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel, and I don't have their ranks in front Polchick. of me, but uh, Polchek and Schultz yep. uh, at while I was out there, and um, we should be airing that episode in a few weeks, sometime in February, on a regular from the Crow's Nest podcast. So. Um, you know, we'll be talking a lot more about this. I think you and I are hopefully going to go out there at the end of March uh, when the first one arrives. Um, and so it'll be a, a topic that we're definitely covering closely. Um, wanted to kind of jump into a little bit more about what's happening today. Um, and. Uh, oh, yeah, we have a question. All right. We have a question coming in from the audience. So, so the question is, let me pull that. Has the U.S. Air Force made uh, a compass call EWO a general? Um, I would, would uh, yes, yes. I mean, Congressman Bacon was a very Don beard. Bacon. Yeah, yeah, Don Don Bacon would be the only one I could think of. Um, he was a one star when he retired. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So it would, but I, the list is I probably pretty short. I would imagine. I, I think so. Yeah. I don't think, I think she was the first one. I, I remember, um, yeah, there may have been something in that, you know, cold war era or something like that, but, but he's the first one I know that went on to command the 55th, the 55th wing, yeah, 55th wing. And then, and now he's, uh, obviously a chair of the EWR group. I remember I, I've said, I've told the story before, but like, I remember when, uh, he, he was a Colonel at the time, uh, in the head of the 55th, uh, ECG, um, he, I, I made a mistake talking to a reporter like you, John, um, it was not you, uh, but I was talking about, uh, us EW and I used the example of the prowler at the time, um, completely leaving out 
uh, the the vital role of the compass call. And uh, Colonel Bacon just sent me one of the uh, a letter where left that left no doubt how he felt about AOC and me leaving the compass call out of the narrative. That uh, I, I was apologizing him profusely for 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 weeks um, for that. And I called the reporter. I'm like, you've got to make a correction, you know, and all this. And everything got cleared up. Um, and so it's uh, it, <laughs> I. For so, for every, so every time I see him, even now as congressman, I still remember that 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 letter that he sent. Like, how I can't believe AOC would. I'm like, it was not AOC. It was totally me. I am. I'm, I'm sorry, uh, but you 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 nowadays do have to make sure you like the compass call is such a critical role in our you our ability to fight in the spectrum, uh, along with everything that we're doing in the other services. In your defense, Ken, go back 20 years, a little more. You have the airborne electronic attack analysis of alternatives. And the Air Force didn't even really participate in that. They they chimed in after the fact to say, hey, you forgot us, but they didn't come in in the beginning. And so Compass Call also was at that time primarily like right up to uh, the, again, Afghanistan and Iraq. It was not seen as a, as a it was seen as part of a, of a um, car, you know, uh, car communications for for um, integrated air defense suppression, right? So it was a seed asset to take away the data links and an IADS. It, it really hadn't trained its sort of focus and target sets and everything on what it did in Afghanistan in 2002, 2003, which was, which was you know, to me, that changed the mission completely for the, you know, it expanded it, I should say. And that's when, that's when Compass Call really took on the, the mantle of the EW community for the Air Force. But it looked like back then, you know, it was a very niche asset for from a Cold War that, you know, 10 years before that had, had ceased to be relevant. So credit to the community, Columbus Call community for adapting. We did a yeah. lot of adapting back then of, of Cold War assets to, to irregular warfare, but Compass Call made one of the most hugest contributions and in, in, in adapted. But but at the moment that that reporter asked you, the Air Force was still like corporate Air Force was still not in, you know, they were gotten rid of the F-111 and hadn't really replaced it with anything. Well, yeah. And, and but you gave me the advice that if a journalist ever asks you a question, you start off with saying, let me explain it like this. Just stop because nothing good is going to follow. And I have taken that to heart uh, for, for 20 years since. So, Laura, you, you got something else for us coming in? Do, do we need le EW leadership that has both authority and resources to make the, the, right, the, 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 right, the right priorities moving forward? Do you want me to answer that? You know, I'm, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm, or, I'm ready or, or to Matt, go on either that either one. one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. This has been like, your life's work for we? like years. <laughs> <laughs> we, we learn it all the time in budget deliberations. And it's actually a good segue probably to talk about the, the uh, NDAA. But... But but the services have have um, have really dragged their feet on developing organization and leadership, and, and we've known this since really identified the 2008 uh, capabilities based assessment that the Juke did. It's been identified back then, and we have struggled to implement it ever since, even to today. We still really aren't ready for a 21st century fight in the EMS. I don't think. I don't think. I think. You know, to quote someone from the Juke who I won't name in 2008, we're going to get into a fight in the future somewhere, Taiwan Strait, somewhere. And 
in that time before that happens, it's 2008 to whenever that fight happens, we're either going to incrementally build this up and get there ahead of time and have the organizational leadership to make sure that we're fighting that way, or we're going to lose a bunch of things, carriers, squadrons, F-22s, whatever, you name it. We're going to lose a bunch of things, and then we're going to get there in reaction to it, which we're going to do in a hurry and do it poorly. So we'd rather do it the first way, but either way, the end result is we will end up with that. I don't know when that happens, but I'm not, I have no doubt that we will we will end up with it. It's just whether we do it ugly or we do it smart. Well, I think the, uh, I think the, the I think the, I, I see the issue a different way, right? So, you know, I think that, you know, the program has done a great job of buying the new platform and then they wrote the check and they're like, we're done. So, you know, one of the things that we heard, uh, you know, kind of down in, you know, Davis Lawton is like, you know, did we buy enough? Like, do we need to keep shopping? Like, are we done? Like, like, is the procurement over? Like, and, and I, I think that happens often, you know, where, okay, cool. We, you know, put, we put the thing on the budget 10 years from now, we bought it and now like we're done with it. Um, you know, this is, you know, like, as we talked about earlier, this is a platform that's always changing, like always getting updated. Like, I think that's where the prioritization needs to be like, Hey, cool. We bought it. Now we need to buy more. And by the way, we need to update what we have. Like the spiral program is great. Uh, but you know, arguably it's still going to be spiraling slower than we need it to be. Um, you know, one of the things that we talked about a, a little bit and, you know, a general concern from down there is, you know, John talked about the ability to update the compass call. Well, it was a C-130 that had lots of room, slap a box on, wired in, good to go. Everything now is software. So, you know, the the, the platform is much smaller. Uh, there's fewer people inside, uh, you know, so especially if it takes on this mothership role, you know, I, I remember getting in the, uh, the growler for the first time and there's just so much more to look at, like so much more data management that me as an operator had to do. You know, if you become a mothership operator, you know, managing your platform, all the other platform, like, you know, there's got to be tools and things to help that out. Um, like that, those are the concerns that I see is that, you know, we have to continue to prioritize, not just prioritize because we bought it, but, you know, keep that priority level high for the next, you know, couple of decades for sure. Yeah, and, and, you know, John, John mentioned, you know, some of this has to do with um, our, uh, with, with the NDAA and, and Congress and, and the annual funding bill. Um, you know, I, in the interest of time, I'm not going to go into too much. I mean, we actually, we'll have uh, some folks from uh, Forza DC come on the show here, the subscriber edition here, and 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 give us an update on where things are. But you know, we did sign. We we do have the NDAA done for 24. That's that's fantastic. Uh, some good EMSO language in there um, that uh, speaks well that to the notion that you know both Congress and DoD are starting to really see this the way that they need to. The problem is that we still don't have a defense budget for 24, a defense bill. And we won't probably at least until March. Uh, I'm starting to believe that unless something happens, we might just have a CR all the way to the end of the year at this point, Um, especially when when you think about the presidential election year. And I swear to God, I will not touch that. But you know, if uh, if it, you know, we're under a CR now until March. There's a, and and I think the the idea is, um, if if I have it up here, I believe we have on March first deadline for agriculture, energy, military, construction, and transportation. But then the next deadline is March eighth, and that's the critical one uh, because that's uh, that that includes the defense bill and a lot of what would end up being some of the non non defense spending and and. HHS and so forth. So, you know, 
one of the things that Congress has done really well over recent years to to the I think quite frankly the detriment of good government is going is creating crisis and going crisis to crisis in in, in, in the in the appropriations field. So you can have a great defense, you can have a great NDAA, but if you don't have a defense appropriations bill, you don't have the money to do what you need to do in the NDAA. So it's a really a two part thing. Um, you know, th- John, th- you know you. You cover a lot of what's going into the, the conversation, the defense bill. You know, what is your thought about, you know, it's one thing to have a good authorization bill to say, yeah, you have the authority, you have the policy, you have everything to do it. But you know what? We're not going to actually give you the money because we're not passing it on time. And quite frankly, we know that these delays in the defense bill, you know, they 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 th- they throw off milestone achievement. They throw off system arri- delivery. They throw off a lot of different things that that trickle down uh, over, over throughout the year. So it's not just a matter of, you know, March eighth, DOD gets its money and everyone's happy and everything's back on time. That's not how it works in the real world. So how do we kind of, you know, from an all of government really kind of figure out how to make sure that EW is taken care of in the in the defense bill? So when I look at the defense bill, again, NDA policy bill approves is the money. Um, so let's talk near term, far term, right? Near term is the money and the approves bill. That is a bit of a, I won't call it a train wreck, but it's a mess. You're getting basically a default sequestration if the CR goes the whole year. You're going to get some sort of, you know, just everything's frozen and your new starts aren't happening. So you're, 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 you're eating into your monetization and upgrade uh, in sustainment, frankly, um, planning. And so you're going to play catch up on that. The NDA is a different game. That, that language was, uh, again, I, I wrote about this in my January editorial and, and we were at, uh, in, in, in the, the news section of Jen, but that language is the most forceful language I've seen there. I don't even know how many reports they asked for, but they asked for a lot of reports. And I, I kind of like cynically thought, Congress is going to force the DOD to staff their EWO, uh, you know, uh, their, their commands are going to be full of EWO staffers because they've got to answer all these reports. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, just, they want the COCOMs to answer. They want, you know, the, the services. So they're going to have to fill a bunch of builds just to, just to answer those reports. Um, but I think Congress is trying to get a sense of, they're very frustrated because they hear the, air, the, the services, not just the Air Force, but the services say, EW is important and really need this. MSO is really important to us and they don't ask for enough money or they don't ask for, this is a disconnect there. So they're very much forcing the issue. It's, it goes way beyond the language that came out in 2018, 19, where they said, well, let's make this vice chairman, the joint chiefs, the senior designated official for EW. Um, it goes way beyond that. They're just, they're just going into the entire bureaucracy and saying, all right, we're holding you all accountable. You're going to report this if you're, it, so you're going to have to get smart on what you have and what you're going to do. And then we're going to hold your feet to the fire because we're going to have all your reports from you saying what you're going to do. So you can't just blame it on the previous commander. This is institutional. Um, it's I don't know if it will succeed any better than the SDO plan succeeded. It, that I don't think went very well. Um, trying to force that issue with, with the vice chairman uh, it, just because it wasn't it was a forcing function that was a little too much force, I think. Um, but so I, I like the NDA and I think that's the long game. That's something that in five years is going to matter to appropriations, but getting there is going to be a lot of, EW is just going to get caught up in the rest of the defense appropriations turmoil. We're not the only ones going through this. It's just that we're more vulnerable because 
when they do have to save money, we do not have the senior leaders to defend it. So if we don't get 10 compass calls, uh, you know, as planned, when we really probably need double that, maybe, uh, we might end up with eight or something like that just for the near term until you get it together. But it's going to be, you know, I, I look at that. It's going to be a couple budget cycles before that NDA language, if it has an effect, can take effect. Um, you know, with, with our remaining time left, you know, one of the other the other aspects of that gets uh, that gets caught up in this budget conversation is, of course, the, the U.S. support for Ukraine, uh, the war in Ukraine, and and what's going on over there. We were taught there was an, we sent around an article sent from one, somebody who's uh, in the audience, um, and it was basically talking about how you know. Ukraine drives Russia out back out of a most critical territory by David Axe, um, and it's in uh, the U- Telegraph. Um, but it was a, a article, you know, interesting article about you know the how Ukraine is uh, kind of turning the tide a little bit. The what, what's going on in the war? Obviously, every time we talk defense spending, defense budget, the the so the, the question of how we support Ukraine is brought up and the amount of money that we're going to be, we need to send over there. Uh, we had a great, fantastic closing session at our convention in December on Ukraine. Um, so I just wanted to, in our, in our last few minutes, bring it, you know, ask you about your thoughts about where we're at and what are some of the things that we need to consider moving forward here in the near future as it pertains to uh, Ukraine war, particularly how we're, the lessons we're learning on the employment of EW in the Ukraine war and, and what it means for, you know, just how the U S is responding to that, to that crisis. Yeah. So I think one of the things that I really took away and I thought it was, a uh, you know, I, I think it's probably a, a part that needs to go up from the convention is that, you know, while we're sending a lot of money, we're not necessarily sending or spending it in the right places, right? You know, they're fight, arguably fighting a very low budget drone kind of war, you know, and, and we're spending billions of dollars on these big things that really are turning the tide. So, you know, I think it was a, it was a very interesting perspective from being on the ground, you know, what, you know, the most targeted assets are those drone controllers. Like they're the ones that are getting sniped, like, you know, a very different perspective than maybe we have over here about, you know, and they just need like all these big weapons. That's not really, you know, what we're talking about. So, so I think, you know, the, the monetary support is good. I think we maybe need to take a look and be a little smarter about how we're spending that money and what we're spending it on. Uh, that was definitely one of my takeaways from the convention, for sure. Yeah, my, I've been thinking a lot about Ukraine, just again, and how to get into JED. And, and just there's a couple observations I have about it. One is just in, I've been doing this for 30 years now, and I've never seen a war, uh, an ongoing war, so well documented. Um, and there's obviously a lot that isn't said, but uh, but it's really been interesting to follow the phases that EW and MSO, the EMS competition, of this two years so far of conflict um, from the opening invasion uh, that Russia, the full-scale invasion they made in February 22, the way it was thwarted, the way that uh, Ukraine has been, had been successful in injecting maneuver into their fight and using EW to do some of that with drones. And then really how in the last year, it's turned into, uh, again, what they're referring to as positional warfare, trench warfare, uh, very stagnant front line. And that, I don't think Russia has really adapted its EW strategy to that. I think Russia finally got the fight to play into the way they always do EW, 
which is just get on a front line and pour a ton of energy over the, you know, over the, over the flat and, and basically just, just, you know, brute force. They're, they're not, they're, and the Ukrainians are struggling to regain maneuver. Uh, and, 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 and again, that's kind of one set of observations. It's just these phases of the war, the way that they've adapted it. Um, and there's obvious, and the other thing I think it's really important for us to remember is the Ukraine is not fighting the way we would fight, right? We would never get into that kind of fight. I don't think in the, in the West, we would, we would, we have air power. Ukraine doesn't, Russia really doesn't use theirs very, they use it kind of as an extension of artillery. They don't use it the way that we would expect. Um, they don't have, Ukraine doesn't have a lot of armor. Russia's armor is very vulnerable to javelin as they found out in those first weeks of the war. So it's, it's stagnated, but it's, Ukraine has really struggled to break into, get into another phase of maneuver. Um, and, and they're looking, there was the, the uh, uh, piece that um, the Russian, uh, sorry, the, the uh, Ukrainian general wrote in The Economist, and, and that was referred to a lot at the AOC convention in that e Ukraine session. But the way that they need to restore maneuver back into the fight, and EW is part of that, um, some of it's simple. But to, to Matt's point, like, you got to remember that this is a knife fight more than long range. You know, Ukraine has been successful at, at periodic long range attacks on Russian infrastructure or, you know, places in Crimea bases. But if you look at those strikes, kind of interesting, they've done it locally with drones. They haven't sent drones from Ukraine probably all the way into Russia. It's probably something more local. And then the, 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 the Russian, uh, sorry, the Ukrainian general, I should say Russian, the Ukrainian general that spoke at AOC, um, I think made a good point that I think he was the one that made it at the AOC session, the Ukraine session. Everyone's focused on this ground war, this sort of stagnant positional warfare thing. But, but on the naval side, Ukraine's actually been tremendously successful at using unmanned uh, surface vehicles to vessels to attack Russian ships in Crimea and force the Russians to actually pull back to other parts you know, along the Eastern Black Sea. And that's, that's actually remarkably successful for a country that doesn't have a Navy. They've actually, you know, taken maneuver space, a lot of maneuver space away from the Russian Navy. And again, they, you know, uh, Fish made a good point about, they've got two pilots that have got more than like three or 400 hours of flight time, combat hours. And, and you know, what does that say about the S-300, S-400 generation of threats? I'm not saying that it negates that, but, but for me, it, 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 it is, we, we have more understanding of what's going on there. And, 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 and again, I, you know, I look at the F-16s that Ukraine's going to get. I look at the Abrams tanks. They're not getting them in sufficient numbers probably, but I'm curious to see what Ukraine does with F-16s that we have never thought of, because I'm pretty sure based on everything else they've done with the things we've given them, they're going to think about using them in new ways. Mm -hmm. Matt, Matt, any closing thoughts on this? Um, we're, un unfortunately, we're uh, kind of running out of time here for the episode, but we could, you know, obviously we'll continue this in future future talks. Any any thoughts? Yeah, I, yeah. The final closing thought that I would say is, you know, I think um, providing support to them is great, but I think it's also important that we like learn some things, right? Like they they're you know to John's point, they're doing things way differently than we would do them. But some of it's working really well. We, we need to make sure we write that stuff down and bring that back and, you know, incorporate to that into how we do business instead of, you know, often we're kind of at the forefront of, of how things get done. And, 
you know, we had to, need to take the opportunity to learn from other people different ways to uh, to uh, attack those things. So I think that's really important that we do that. Great. Well, and and before before we he- head out, I want to bring in Laura. Um, if there's anything else that we're missing from the chat or any other questions before we uh, wrap up today's episode, so I wanted to. John and Matt, you know, thank you for for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. That's all the time that we have for today's uh, episode, but I'm sure I'll have you both back. Um, I believe here in a, in a couple weeks uh, we're going to get Fish on. We're going to get uh, Forza DC, Madison, Archangeli on. We're going to get a whole bunch of different people on these subscriber episodes to really give us kind of an inside look uh, as to what's going on in the current events. Uh, so looking forward to these future discussions, but I want to thank you uh, both for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest this afternoon. Thanks, Ken. You bet. All right, so that will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest, the inaugural subscriber edition. I want to thank everyone in the audience for joining, uh, for participating in the chat. Um, and as we continue this, you know, hopefully, you know, we get a lot more questions to come in because I, it's really, it, I really enjoy reading through the chat, the comments of people participating, and the questions, and to kind of get a sense for where our audience is on these topics. Um, so I think our, our next scheduled subscriber edition recording is going to be on Tuesday, February 6th at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'll try to keep it at the same time and, and, and day of the week uh, so it's easy to schedule and anticipate. Uh, for AOC members, we'll send around a link to join in. Um, and again, for now, these editions are op- free to the public uh, on Wednesdays when we release them tomorrow. Uh, but they will be going behind a paywall soon. So if you're not an AOC member, you know, uh, become one today. It's really great value, quite frankly. And uh, and but if it you if you want to wait for the subscription to come out, that'll be two dollars and ninety nine cents, and that'll that'll be starting sometime uh, probably early March. Uh, also, uh, don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast, both the uh, the subscriber as well as the regular from the Crow's Nest. We also have a history of crows. A new episode that we released on December. Uh, We're going to be releasing some of those here in 2024 as well. So uh, we always enjoy hearing from our listeners. uh, So please take some time to let us know how we're doing. Uh, That's it for today. You can follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn uh, at, uh, at FTCN host. Thank you for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.